Joining us now on the batter round is someone uh, who I've never met, but uh, I always respected a knuckleballer, and Steve Sparks was uh, one of the the dying breed, uh, pitching for Milwaukee, Detroit, the Angels, and uh, I'm leaving out one team in there that I just saw this morning. Was it Arizona, Steve? Arizona and Oakland A's. Oakland A's, that's Mm -hmm. right. Hey, before we talk about the Houston Astros, which was the main reason we brought you on, Steve Sparks of the Astros broadcast booth, what is the deal? What what has happened that has taken us to the point where I can't think of a single knuckleball pitcher in the major leagues right now? There's one, and he's kind of carrying the torch right now, and it's Stephen Wright with the Boston Red Sox. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right, yeah, and And I've got him on my fantasy team, yeah. Yeah, he's been injured a lot of the year, yep. but he looks to have a prominent role in the bullpen for the Red Sox in, in the postseason uh, as he's gotten healthy and he's pitching really well late. Uh, and he should be in somebody's rotation next year. I believe he's a free agent this year. Yep. And I think there's only a handful in the minor leagues right now. But, it, you know, it's gone through waves in the past. You can look at certain, certain periods, but, you know, then sometimes somebody will win the Cy Young like, R.A. Dickey did five or six years ago, and then, then you start to have, you know, more come out of the woodwork as teams will try to see if they can they can get lucky too. How hard is the pitch? In other words, tell me a little bit about your career. Were you a knuckleballer in the minor leagues, or did you go to the knuckleball out of like sort of a last resort? Yeah, it was more of a last resort. I was having trouble getting out of the double A level, and actually, the Milwaukee Brewers at the time came to me. Uh, with a suggestion, I'd never thrown one, and gave me a three-year plan. You know, they wanted to up the percentage of throwing knuckleball from 30 to 50 to 70 percent, and kind of take inventory of where we were at at that point. And at that point, at the end of that third year, I was knocking at the door of making my debut in 1995. And what do you think? If you, or maybe they communicated it to you at the time. What was it that they saw since you hadn't really thrown the pitch before that they thought was it that the stuff was so bad that you had at the time, or did they see something in your stuff that said this guy might be able to master this pitch? You know, I think they were just trying to give me every opportunity. They, you know, I was an organizational guy, spent some time in their system, maybe five or six years at that point. And they wanted to exhaust their their chances for me, and they just felt like, I'll tell you a couple of things that I think work in my favor. A little shorter, I think being six foot, being a little lower to the ground, it's easier to stay behind that pitch longer, which you need to do. Okay. Um, the other thing was pretty simple mechanics. And the third thing, and I'm not sure if they were aware of this or, or not, but this is something that I learned in, in meeting all the other knuckleballers and getting to know them and talk to them about it, is that everybody has a similar temperament. And it's kind of a laid-back, not mm-hmm. really excitable type of temperament. And those are the pitchers that or the, the kind of personality you need to have to be able to throw that pitch in big situations in front of 40,000 people on a 3-2 count with the bases loaded, things like that. You just can't overthrow that pitch. And more excitable uh, type of personalities just don't, don't, don't seem to be able to handle that. It's the a- Astros, since I've taken this job, have asked me to work with a couple of uh, minor league knuckleballers uh, during spring training on occasion when they've had a guy uh, down in spring training. And I could tell right away, you know, within one or two minutes, just having conversations that 
temperament-wise, are probably not going to be able to, to handle that pitch. Well, now, you, you mentioned something very interesting, and that's that you can't overthrow it, but there are some guys who do throw it where the knuckleball is 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 thrown harder, harder. than, than yeah, yeah, and R.A. Dickey was certainly one, but, you know, sure. harder than, you know, maybe another guy. So I, I guess it's really just about all feel for the pitcher, right? It's feel for the pitcher, and, and if you watch Dickey, he's not overthrowing to get that velocity. It just right. happens to be he, – he was a he was a first-round draft pick, and, and for good reason, because he threw really hard coming out of the University of Tennessee, and he never really had an arm injury that caused him uh, to have to throw a knuckleball. He had to throw a knuckleball because his fastball was so straight. Mm-hmm. So he needed something else, but his arm strength was still really strong, and if he wanted to throw his fastball off of the same mechanics, he was still throwing 90 miles per hour. The Orioles have one knuckleballer in their system, and he was—he uh, went to Texas for a year and a half in between, but Eddie Gamboa. And Gamboa right. had worked with Phil Necro, and I interviewed Necro about three years ago, maybe four years ago, and he told me that Gamboa's knuckleball was as good as any he had seen, but he qu- never quite made it. Is is it is it that it's tough to to do it throw it consistently? Is that mm-hmm. where the problem comes in? That's where the problem is. I mean, it's more so than any other pitch. Your mechanics almost have to be perfect to be able to start it in one place. You don't know which direction it's gonna it's gonna go once once the wind, the resistance of the the wind, kind of takes care of the scenes and makes the ball dance. But you're aiming basically for the catcher's face face mask and letting the ball fall from gravity and dance around and do whatever it does. But to stay behind the ball, you can't let your body get out ahead of your arm. It's just way more mechanical than than uh, other pitches. And if you're excitable, things like that, you get out of your mechanics. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And uh, The other thing is, is when you're playing catch, it's much easier to throw a good knuckleball rather than getting on a mound because when you uh-huh. go downhill – you know, if your palm's not behind the baseball, if you're throwing downhill and you start to roll over those pitches, it stems just a little bit, gets that little little subtle topple, and then it becomes batting practice. Steve, let me ask you this. In the National League right now, I would say all of the teams that are in the playoffs and heading for the postseason have issues with their bullpens. I don't think you can name a team out there that's competing in the National League that doesn't have some kind of bullpen issues. But it looks right. like it looks like from the Astros standpoint, uh, all of a sudden, you know, in the last three weeks or so, that uh, this entire staff seems to have been coming together pretty well uh, and, and pretty much right at the right time for you guys. It has. And the bullpen has been underrated all season long. But the reason why I think they stayed so fresh compared to other teams is because the starters went so deep into the ball games. They threw more innings than anybody else. And then with the acquisition of Roberto Asuna and Ryan Presley, who kind of let everything else kind of gel into place, I think it ended up being something almost perfect for these guys to be able to round in. The Astros needed a couple starters to fill in to give some guys an extra two days on occasion uh, in the rotation, like a Garrett Cole. Uh, Burnlander got an extra day, two starts to go. So things like that have kept the starters intact as well. But uh, they're going to go as far as their horses can take them, though. Burnlander and Cole at the top, and you can mix in Keichel and Morton after that. And then 
you know, turning things up to a bullpen that's well-rested, very talented, and very diverse. And you guys know diversity in a bullpen to handle matchups means a lot. Tell me a little bit about, and I'm not asking you to break confidence or anything, how difficult was the acceptance of Roberto Asuna into that locker room? I mean, it it seems like it's having a quote-unquote happy ending uh, right now with the way he's pitching and the way he's taking charge. But that was that was a bumpy ride, wasn't it, to bring him in? It was in a bumpy there. ride, yeah. It was awkward. Nobody knew how to handle it. And for the players, I think it was just like, okay, he's in our clubhouse. What do we do? So you just try to get to know somebody. You right. know? And, and he can't talk about anything. So it's always lingering, I'm, I'm sure, in the back of your mind. But, and I think the awkwardness also comes from having to answer questions about it so often. And, yep. and A.J. Hintz, the manager, had to take the brunt of that. So basically every city uh, that the Astros went to, that became – you know, a part of the conversation you know, rather than baseball. That's that's something we had to talk about. But he was very patient. Um, yep. In uh, the players now, it, it appears. I mean, things went very seamless. And to Roberto's credit, he's a very charming, very quiet. You know, he's very unassuming. He just comes in, and does his job, and you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you you guys are all you know working for a common goal, and he fit in, and he and he pitched well too. Tell me a little bit about why Houston is so so good at making changes with already more than established pitchers. And I'm really talking about what they were able to get out of Charlie mm-hmm. Morton, right. uh, ultimately Justin Verlander, and now what they've done with Ryan Presley. It's right. not just simply analytics. It's a refinement of analytics where they help the pitcher with the choice of what to throw, it seems like. Right, and it's Garrett Cole, too. So Garrett, and Garrett Cole, Cole yeah. 8.4 strikeouts per nine-inning pitch in his career right. up to 12.6, and it's one of the greatest jumps we've seen in the last 25 years. And you're talking about a pitcher who has the stuff, obviously, from the eye test, you can tell. But the Astros just felt like they could identify things in certain pitchers where if they up their pitch usage at certain pitches, particularly against certain handed batters. And that's what we've seen. We've seen... Cole go from a, hit, a pitcher who's kind of struggled against left-handed pitchers who's dominated. Charlie Morton did that before. And then you mentioned Ryan Cressley, who the Astros tabbed from the Minnesota Twins at the trade deadline. Yeah. They felt like if he upped his usage of his breaking ball, which they thought was one of the best in the game, according to spin rate and things like that, then they think they, they really have an elite you know, bullpen piece. And that's, that's what it's looked like so far. I think spin rate you know, when I was coming up through the minor leagues, and I spent 10 years in the minor leagues as a starting pitcher, uh, the day before and the day after you start, you're behind home plate in the stands like a scout with a with a gun and you're charting pitches and things. And there was a lot of pitchers when I was coming up that threw 88, 89 miles per hour that would throw it right by a guy. But we never knew why. You know, we just thought maybe he had some deception to his delivery. But now I realize it's, Forcing spin rate that deviates from the standard. If, if it's you know 300 more reps per per minute faster than the normal, then it's almost an optical illusion to a hitter. You've always heard hitters talk about some pitcher's fastball rises, but it looks like it rises. It can't actually do it. But when it deviates from the standard, it's an illusion, and that's why you get the swing and miss. And that's what the Astros try to identify. 
So if I'm an opposing general manager and I want to improve my pitching staff, I think I enter into the uh, talking to the Astros and see who they want from my pitching staff and figure out what we're yep. missing on that guy. Well, all the all the data is out there now. Yeah, you know, with Statcast and you know, TrackMan and all that stuff, it's all out there. It's just being able to recognize certain things that your your team might be missing at that point. Steve, were you a, a huge baseball fan growing up? I was, yeah. yeah. I had a morning paper out from third grade to college, and I spent ninety percent of my money on baseball cards. Yeah, so, I fell in love with it really early. So my question is: Is the game there still able to be loved by fans at the same way, even if they don't understand spin rates and analytics yeah. and all that? Is the game still approachable and for fans? I think it is because of social media. They can almost kind of get to know a personality of a player. We really didn't have that, did we? You know, we knew no. statistics and we knew what their off-season jobs were and things like that. But now with social media, you really get a chance to to know players. And I'm not big on social media. And I think some of the mystery was kind of cool. Yeah. You know, being able to watch, you know, Willie Mays or somebody and just think that he's just fun-loving. But we never really know people completely but uh as a kid and i think as a fan it's always fun to have a little bit of mystery behind these players and just enjoy what they did for a living you said something very interesting there <clears throat> pardon me off-season jobs Right. <laughs> yeah. Yo, you know, around here, Boog Pal always talked about that. You know, yeah, he we was a liquor salesman uh, or something. Yeah, like that. you know, whether you you you, you delivered the mail or right. do yeah, it was right. amazing. Uh, yeah, Al Kaline. We, we talk yep. to Al Kaline a lot when we go up to Detroit. One of my favorites of all time, and he's a Baltimore native, as you all know. Yep. But he talks about his off-season jobs, I and mean, what was the uh, twenty-three-time All-Star, or whatever it was. Yeah, uh, Hall of Famer, but. Uh, as soon as he was done with his playing career with Detroit, he he forged so many cool relationships in the area that he went right to work right when his, right when his career was done with whatever he was doing in the off season. But before we let you go, without asking you a prediction, uh, I do want to ask you about one guy that you got to witness the past couple of years, which is Alex Cora uh, as a mm-hmm. bench coach under AJ Hinch in Houston. Does it right. surprise you at all how successful he's been in Boston? With its first no, managerial very, gig? No, very smart. Um, I think he learned a lot from A.J. Hinch, you know, as far as making sure he communicated, made sure that different cultures in the clubhouse communicated with each other and just built a, an environment uh, where you paid attention to detail, you prepared really well, and outside of that, just have as much fun as you can. I think when you do that, your fundamentals are tight, and you, your team has talent. Obviously, the Red Sox are super talented, but you have somebody that kind of gets it. Um, I think Alex Corum is a perfect fit um, for the Red Sox. I mean, it's funny. They hired Alex Cora, I think, a week, maybe five days, before I saw Dave Darboski last offseason. Our, our daughters happened to be in the same sorority at the same college. That's small world. And yeah. I saw him last November. He said, man, this, I just hired Alex Cora. He said, what can you tell me about him? I said, you made a good hire. He said, right. well, you never know. You go through these interviews, and we interview him for a couple of hours, and you never really know for sure, but, you know, he just wanted to talk about him a little bit and find out what I knew about him. He's, he's, he's on top of his game. He's, he's a great pick for them. 
Hey, just a quick uh, last thing. Um, we're we're going into this rebuild here. Nobody knows exactly whether Dan's going to be back as vice president of baseball ops, right. Buck in the managerial thing. I'm not putting him out as a potential manager of the Orioles, but you got to know Richie Dower, I'm guessing, over the last couple uh-huh. of years. Did, did Dower retire or, or leave the Astros because he had had it with baseball, or might he be an interesting person to, to get back in uniform as a bench coach? Well, I, I don't want to speak for Richie. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly sure. Okay. One thing is, when the Astros had their World Series parade last year, he had a traumatic uh, episode. I know the whole story about that. Okay, so, so, so that rules him out of probably being that back was, in that was part. That was part of yeah. uh, the reason why he, he was going to be out of baseball this okay. year. Okay. And we've seen him since. He had a, a miraculous full recovery. And we all love Richie yep. to death. But uh, I'm not sure. You know, okay. I, I think when you, when a team decides to, to go a different direction, I think transparency for the fan base yep. is essential. I think the Astros did well in that regard. And to spend money at the right time. I mean, it, And it's not about tanking or anything else. It's just being fiscally responsible and doing things the right way. And you got to be you have to have a good development program in place to, to help these guys become pretty good major leaguers in short order once they make it. All right. We really appreciate it. First time I got to meet you and talk to you. Really enjoyed the, the conversation, Steve Sparks. My pleasure, guys. Y'all take care. All right. Have a great postseason. All right. There you Thank go. You. Member of the broadcast booth of the Houston Astros, Steve Sparks.